Hello and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where we take a look back at the pop culture from our youth and, with the power of hindsight, decide whether the movies, music, and TV we loved as kids still holds up today. I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host, most likely to be a woman with grace, elegance, taste, and culture, a woman suitable for a king. I'm Seth Pearson, the podcast host, most likely to see there is a very thin line between love and nausea. And I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to be found mopping up a knockoff McDonald's in Queens. <laughs> uh, well, Happy New Year, guys. Thank you. Uh, somehow all three of us survived 2017 without being called out as a sexual predator. And for that, I believe we deserve a round of applause. I just didn't tell you about my little incident. Oh. 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 <laughs> and we'll just gloss right over that. Backing slowly away from the microphone. We're canceling the new season of uh, When We Were Young. Yeah. Thanks, for thanks, Chris. Ruining our podcast with your sexual exploits. Honestly, really, the biggest victim here is our brand. <laughs> oh well that's what i was molesting so oh, okay. i think it's okay <laughs> oh well just keep your hands to that our brand is only two years old <laughs> well we are now replacing chris with christopher Plummer. so bye chris <laughs> it's an easy switch we've been saying chris this whole time it's an honor to be here is that what he sounds like i don't know <laughs> but it was my best <laughs> On this week's podcast, we are taking a look back at the 1988 Eddie Murphy comedy Coming to America, which celebrates its 30th anniversary this year. So did you guys watch Coming to America growing up? Um, and were you a fan of Eddie Murphy growing up and any one of his comedies? No. <laughs> did you watch any of his movies growing up? I mean, I'm sure I knew who Eddie Murphy was in a general sense, but I don't think he was really on my radar until The Nutty Professor. So that's mm-hmm. when you first encountered the Xenomurph? <laughs> <laughs> It was my first Murph. Please refer to episode 17 of the podcast when we were young about uh, aliens to get that reference. It is one of our most enduring running jokes. I think that all of his movies were too adult for me to grow up watching because I didn't live in Becky's household. (laughs) Uh, I think a lot of them were rated R, uh, like the 80s movies. In fact, I can't think of any that weren't rated R. Maybe there are a couple, but that from before the Nutty Professor era. Mm -hmm. So they just kind of skated past me. And even like the Nutty Professor, I like, I saw it, it was fine, but I wasn't a particular fan of his. I liked Bowfinger. But honestly, I've never really been an Eddie Murphy fan. I mean, like at that time, he was making really bad movies like Pluto Nash. and That's pretty much when it, I'll I'll get into the downfall of Eddie Murphy, but that's pretty much when it started to turn sour. But I kind of, yeah, I came in and there was just like a brief kind of a high point where he made some hits. And then it was all downhill. So I never really got an attachment to Eddie Murphy. And I never saw this movie until a few years ago. With me. Yes. <laughs> I didn't see this movie growing up, but I knew that a ton of people in my family loved it because it was very much a VHS tape that they had taped <laughs> off of cable. Um, the first Eddie Murphy movie I ever saw was The Golden Child. Which I is, don't know what that it's is. It's like an action comedy about this Chinese kid who's like supernaturally powerful and gets kidnapped by bad guys and Eddie Murphy has to go after them. Is he a cop? Them. He's a, I don't know. Detective? Uh, he's probably a detective cop. 
Um, I also didn't watch Beverly Hills Cop, but I knew that, again, a lot of people in my family loved that one. Um, but yeah, that movie, Golden Child, which was like a very minor movie even for him. I don't think that was like a big hit, but it was on cable a lot when I was mm-hmm. a kid um, and first started watching a lot of movies on TV. Uh, I did not see Coming to America until I came to Los Angeles. And I saw it as well for the first time with my podcast co-host, Becky and Chris. Mm. So I think we've mentioned this before, but uh, Seth and Chris and I have had this long going movie night. And by long going, I mean like 15 years at this point Mm -hmm. um, of getting together roughly once a month, maybe once every two months and watching a movie. And it started out watching very classic movies. Like I believe the first one was West Side Story. Like, things that were, like, any cinephile should see these movies. From Here to Eternity, we watched once. Like, uh, Butch Cassidy. Yeah. Um, and then it became movies the opposite that, of that. Well, it became, like, <laughs> movies that you should still see, like, Risky Business, or just movies that, like, aren't necessarily classic, but let's, like, any movie lover might want to watch these. And then it became watching really bad movies. <laughs> then it became, like... Staring what? at the wall. <laughs> now we watch snuff films. <laughs> And our stipulation was at least two people should not have seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Right. It wasn't just like the cinephile dream list. It was, what are these things that have slipped through our own personal cracks over the years? That <laughs> we have... Wait a minute. <laughs> that was a different club you belong to, I believe. <laughs> it's a new year, new outlook. We have to move on from that. The things that just were not a part of our cinematic vocabulary that a lot of people had had in their lives a long time. Coming to America was, you know, my movie I brought to the table when I realized neither of you had seen it. It had not slipped through her crack. (laughs) It hadn't. Um, So she placed it on the table. (laughs) I wouldn't say that I was an Eddie Murphy fan. All I knew of him was maybe his SNL work, which I did like, but I didn't pick him out of the crowd. Like, I liked old SNL in general, and he was just part of that, except Coming to America. I loved Coming to America. I got into it because my sister and her friends were really into this movie, and I talked to her today, and she's actually really sad that she can't be our guest (laughs) for this episode. She's uh, back on the East Coast. Hi, Chelsea. Um, Hi, Chelsea. Hey, Chelsea. Um, Because she loves this movie, and she brought it into my life. And I asked her, like, what got you into this movie? And she was like, it was just on TV all the time. (laughs) Um, And she just, it was very quotable. She quoted it with her friend uh, all the time. And then I just kind of got soaked up into that. And we would just quote it all the time. Uh, Like the Eddie Murphy as the Jewish guy and the joke at the end and sexual chocolate and (laughs) soul glow. Like, we would just spout these lines back and forth to each other. And Coming to America was a movie I don't think I ever owned, even on VHS, because it was on TV all the time. So it was an edited version that you saw? Probably not. No. No, like, oh, on, like on HBO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something okay, like that. Okay. Um, and maybe it was on standard TV edited, but like I knew you filled anything. in. The... Yeah, I filled in the gaps. And then it was on streaming when streaming became a thing. And there's just I know it so well that. I really have no reason to buy it. (laughs) I know it so well, and it's always somehow available to me. So someone could buy you, and you could recite Coming to America (laughs) Uh to them, basically. (laughs) Yeah, basically. I think it's a really interesting movie that... I love so much because there's a lot of black actors in it. And I feel like there weren't a lot of movies like that that permeated pop culture and were huge hits. I guess it's just like one of those anomalies. And there's a really heavily like African culture element to it. But it doesn't make me feel like it's something that I won't understand or it's like separate. It's just such a fun, funny movie that I never felt like it wasn't a movie for me. 
Yeah, it's definitely a broadly appealing movie, and I think that's because the Africa it's depicting is very fantastical. It's yeah. not a real country. And so I don't think that anyone relates to it. I mean, he's a yeah, prince in a true. ridiculous way, so it's just as relatable for everyone, I think. But I, I think it's not infantilizing about Africa or about Africanness mm-hmm. or about what it means to be African. And it's not depicting people as backward and primitive and all of that stuff. There are a lot more specific threads that we'll get into when we start talking about the movie itself. Yeah. And it's not just that, like, the, it stars, like, one or two black people, but it's, like, almost the entire cast in every role as black, except for, like, Louis Anderson. And it's, like, that is really rare to see in a movie that's, like, a studio comedy that costs, like, $40 million. Yeah, and I was going to say that, too. It's not just Africa, but, like, the people that live in New York. And, like, they're just... The romantic interest is black. Uh, Everyone around them is black. The barbers are black. And it's really about being black. Like, that's not really a plot point at all. No, but also, I'm going to put a fine point on it right now. This movie goes on for 23 minutes and 30 seconds before you see a single non-black person. The first mm-hmm. white person, and I didn't notice it until rewatching it this mm-hmm. time, but like it, the thought kind of occurred to me and I was like, I wonder how long it, it takes before a single white person shows up in this movie. It's literally 23 and a half minutes in. Is it the cab driver? It's No, it's at the airport. Okay. The first white people he sees are at the airport. And it's actually... Once you know that, that scene is actually a whole lot funnier because they're, all the white people in the airport are having these like really over-the-top reactions, but they don't seem as over-the-top until you kind of know consciously that, oh, this is literally the first time that this guy is seeing white people. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it was so – it was even that fact alone was really surprising to me watching it this time around. So I want to talk a little bit about Eddie Murphy and where he was in his career when Coming to America came out in theaters. A little bit of what he did before he got into movies. Edward Reagan Murphy was born Whoa. April 3rd, 1961 in Brooklyn, New York. His parents separated when he was three and his father, a police officer and an amateur comedian and actor, died when he was eight. His mother uh, became sick soon after and he and his brother, uh, Charlie Murphy, uh, lived in foster care for a year. And Murphy credits that for developing his sense of humor. And he started stand-up for the first time when he was 15 years old. So he got started very right. early. How old do you think he is in Coming to America? As an actor, you yeah. mean? He's 25. Yeah. Isn't that so young? I mean, he looks young, but he yeah, I guess young. I'm just used to I, thinking I get of... It. Yeah, Eddie Murphy has, like, 30s or something. And Coming to America wasn't his hit breakout movie. Coming to America was Eddie Murphy's eighth movie. Whoa, what was his first big hit? It was 48 Hours. Oh, yeah. Okay, I get it. And he was in Trading Places and the Beverly Hills Cop movies. Um, He also had uh, his stand-up specials, Ron Delirious, and um, he was on Saturday Night Live for four years between 1980 and 1984. And SNL was really the first place where I saw his work. Yeah, definitely. So that means he, like, starred on SNL really early. Like He was a kid on SNL. Yeah. And I mean, like, watching it now, that's really apparent. Um, but when I was, like, growing up and, like, seeing those sketches that he was in, it you couldn't see his age because he's so charismatic and, and mm-hmm. energetic and stuff that that kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. One of the um, clips from SNL that I showed um, Chris and Seth was 
Annie Murphy's famous sketch, White Like Me, where he goes undercover as a white person. And not only is that clip just super funny still, like we were cracking up laughing watching it, but I thought it was really interesting in the fact that that kind of continued throughout his career, that he would play different characters with a lot of makeup on, like trying to um, become someone else. And obviously this one is kind of a joke, but I think it was interesting to see the the beginnings of that shtick that he would do uh, throughout his entire career. Yeah, and I mean, again, we'll get into it, but I think that's really on display and just taken to a whole new level in this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. So Eddie Murphy also has three albums <laughs> because Eddie Murphy is also a pop star. It was it's very strange. Star is a generous word for it. <laughs> pop is too, I think. He had a hit single called Party All the Time. Party All the Time has a recurring lyric that says party all the time. I would never have guessed. Man, it was like an actual hit. What would the equivalent today be of Eddie Murphy doing this? <laughs> it's almost like if The Rock like wanted to like release a pop single, but completely genuine. I guess Kevin Hart. What if like Kevin Hart yeah. Yeah. started a music video with Michael Jackson, <laughs> like, which is another one that that we watched. What was it called? Was up with you? Was up with you? <laughs> which apparently has like a positive message, but the chorus is just "What's up with you? What's up with you? What's up with you?" Yeah, so it seems doesn't like really more make checking sense. in than yeah. uh, positive encouragement. <laughs> I mean, of all the lazy, like, choruses, like, what is that song about? Google all of these videos. They are worth your time. Yes, they will be found on our social media pages. (laughs) (laughs) And in our hearts forever. Coming to America was released on June 29th, 1988. It was directed by John Landis, written by David Sheffield and Barry W. Blaustein, based on a story by Eddie Murphy. It stars, obviously, Eddie Murphy as Akeem. It was his first role as a romantic leading man. It also stars Arsenio Hollis Semi, his um, his royal assistant, his best friend and servant, servant, his yeah. best friend. James Earl Jones plays the King of Zamunda, King Jaffe Joffer. Sherry Headley plays Lisa, his romantic interest in New York. John Amos of Amos and Andy plays Cleo McDowell, Lisa's father. Eric LaSalle of ER fame <laughs> plays Daryl, which is uh, Lisa's um, boyfriend up until she meets Akeem. With the fantastic hair. <laughs> Let your soul <laughs> so glow. Samuel L. Jackson plays a robber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think this uh-huh. may have been his first movie. I'm pretty. It's it's definitely early. 
He's very Samuel L. Jackson-y in it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this was before anyone knew who Samuel L. Jackson was, but they were still like, we need a Samuel L. Jackson type here. <laughs> and he's like, I'm Samuel L. Jackson. They're like, you're hired. <laughs> the boy getting the haircut in the barbershop is Cuba Gooding Jr. Yes, it certainly Cuba. is. And it looks just like him. <laughs> yeah. Looks the same. He does look like himself. Um, as a fun aside, uh, James Earl Jones and Madge Sinclair, um, he play- she plays... Um, his uh, Akeem's mother. Uh, they were the voices of Mufasa and Sarabi, Simba's parents in The Lion King. <laughs> okay. I mean, I obviously knew James Earl Jones, but I didn't recognize mm-hmm. her. Mash Sinclair. Coming to America's budget was $39 million. Box office-wise, it made $128 million domestically, $288 million worldwide, and it was the third highest-grossing movie of 1988. Can you guess the other two movies that beat this at the box office in 1988? Ooh. One of them we've done on the podcast. The it. Land Before Time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really think that was the number one and two? Like... <laughs> No, I was just naming a movie. The number two movie of 1988 was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, no wonder I didn't remember. And the number one was Rain Man. Oh, that doesn't surprise me, actually, because that was a major hit. And swept That's the Oscar. so crazy. Oh, no, Rain Man was the number one highest yeah. grossing. It was just a drama, like a family drama. Yeah, I mean, I knew it had all that critical acclaim and all of that, but I had no idea it was that big yeah, a box it's like office. Oh, yeah. A mid-budget, like, movie... Like and this is coming to America is a mid budget movie exactly. and it's just so crazy that they're the number one and two by today's standards it's crazy that this movie made as much money as it did and that movie made that's as also much true. like this is the kind of movie that studios don't make anymore yeah coming to America was nominated for two Oscars best costume design and best makeup hmm. the makeup was done by legendary Hollywood makeup artist Rick Baker and it took about three to four hours to put all the makeup on whenever they were in character. Review-wise, the movie currently has a 69% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's funny how big of a hit this was, but I was looking at reviews, and a lot of them were more negative, actually. Do you have some examples of those reviews? Yes, Sheila Benson from the LA Times gave it a pretty critical review, saying, John Landis, directing for Murphy's original story, has created a plentiful waste of time and money. By the movie's end, Landis is reduced to cutting to cute reaction shots from miniature poodles for laughs. That an Eddie Murphy movie would come to this. A fair criticism, honestly. There are a lot of poodle reaction shots. <laughs> Sheila, go fuck yourself. <laughs> I didn't read a review of Ebert, but I saw a clip from Siskel and Ebert. He thought that Arsenio and Eddie Murphy both gave great performances, but thought that the story was hackneyed and predictable, and that the energy level was really low for an Eddie Murphy movie. It was funny that more of the reviews at the time were pretty negative, actually. Yeah, I want to talk about John Landis really quick, Mm because he was a pretty big deal. So I just, I recognize the name John Landis. I was familiar with some of his work just by reputation, but I was surprised that he had directed this movie. So I would like to list uh, John Landis movies I have never seen, (laughs) which are Kentucky Fried Movie, Animal House, Blues Brothers, An American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Three Amigos, and Beverly Hills Cup 3. I have seen none of those except Three Amigos. I've seen Three Amigos, Trading Places, Animal House, Blues Brothers. Oh, you've I've seen, seen a lot of them. many of yeah. them. Okay. Yeah. Here's a list of John Landis movies I have seen. <laughs> <Okay>. The Stupids. <laughs> what? Oh, okay. That's all. Why would you even <laughs> have seen list? that? I was a kid. <laughs> Never even heard of that. Is that Tom Arnold? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. So me and my sister actually, like, that was like a guilty pleasure even when we were 
I don't know, I was maybe 13 or something, because we, like, knew it was bad, but we still found it kind of funny. So I like that you can even have guilty pleasures when you're a kid, when you even, you're like, this is too bad (laughs) even for a 13-year-old to like. You should feel guilty about that. Yeah, I don't know. I watched some clips, um, actually, when I saw that that was him, and I was like, still kind of amusing but i wouldn't i wouldn't put it on you can skip Man, the john, stupid but john landis was a legend yes and like, i saw, apparently are... saw his worst movie and that's yeah, it. yeah he Literally. did um beverly hills three i want to say and he also did um a couple segments in the twilight zone movie oh yeah um he is a comedic legend in, as far as filmmaking so um and he's a huge blind spot for me he slips through all my cracks apparently me too yeah i've only seen like <laughs> just a few and then I also saw that John Landis scared the shit out of me when I was a child with the <laughs> Michael Jackson music video Thriller, which really seriously traumatized me when I was a kid. Behold, Simi, life, real life, a thing that we have been denied for far too long. Good morning, my neighbors! Hey, fuck you! Yes! Yes! Fuck you too! So what did you guys think of watching the movie this time? I think this movie is fucking perfect. I absolutely laughed my ass off just based, like, throughout the whole movie. So much of it is so clever. Like, the comedy is so not approached from the least common denominator approach of, like, what's the easiest laugh. There's so much, like, genuine cleverness in the humor of it. I think there's so many funny lines. I love the kind of relationship between Akeem, Eddie Murphy's character, and Arsenio Hall's character, Semi. The way that they kind of, like, try to one-up each other, like, around women is, like, adorable. What really came across to me this time was just seeing how charming Eddie Murphy was as an actor and how, like, him being a romantic lead, like, gave him the chance to kind of show that off in a way that the broader action comedy cop movies and stuff that he'd done before wouldn't have. In a recent episode, uh, two episodes ago, the Titanic episode, you were a slightly unkind to a movie that my sister cherished. What, did she say something? Not yet. <laughs> okay. She will. <laughs> it is now time for me to return the favor a little bit. Aww. Wow. So you're definitely approaching all this from the right point of view. <laughs> I'm doing it like, on purpose, but I think this movie's fine. I- <laughs> It amuses me. I don't think there's anything really particularly wrong with it. It's just not really for me in a lot of ways. I like that it's different in a lot of ways than like you might expect. If you broadly heard the plot of this, I think you would imagine a different movie than this actually ends up being. So I do appreciate that. It's just, I don't know. I mean, we'll get into it more, but... Chris, it sounds like you need to let your soul glow. It tried, and it just, it was kind of like a more of a simmering... (laughs) I don't know. A little late and then it was extinguished. Mm. Your soul was just sweating. Yeah. I think this movie is perfect. (laughs) That's two perfects out of three. It is, I think, my favorite comedy. Like, it's... It still makes me laugh. And I've seen this movie so many times and I watched it again for this podcast and I was just like cracking up. And no matter how many times I see it, I just start laughing. I giggle and laugh and I just like, I it's mean, just I think so Eddie, good. I think Eddie Murphy's performance is perfect from the very first moment he appears on screen. The first scene is him being woken up in the morning and you know, like, good morning, your highness. And he does like a little head tilt toward each of his concubines mm-hmm. and they each <laughs> greet him individually. And, like, I love just because so much of that sequence, like, there is dialogue, obviously, but the action of it is what tells the story of it. 
and it just so quickly and effectively tells the story of someone who was completely trapped in this royal life where he literally cannot do anything for himself and is not allowed to. He can't use the bathroom by himself. He can't wipe himself. He can't tie his shoes. He can't tie his (laughs) shoes. The only part of it he likes is the cleaning of the royal penis. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that the lead character in this movie is black and and the comedy about his Africanness is not at all delineated by any stereotypes of Primitiveness. It's actually defined around kind of colonial ideas of empire and the imperial court and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and I love especially that Prince Akeem, Eddie Murphy's character, really is rejecting that. He's rejecting that vision of Africanness and that vision of kind of his own life in favor of wanting to really start his own life for himself. And yeah, like it's definitely a movie about a man who comes to America to find his wife, but it's also really a movie about someone finding himself for the literal first time in his entire life. Yeah, it's not just about finding a woman, but, you know, experiencing life on his own terms and and learning more about the world. Um, I feel like Eddie Murphy's character, Akeem, is the most likable movie character in any movie. It's like Forrest Gump and Atticus Finch and Akeem. (laughs) (laughs) I am Akeem. It's nice to meet you, Akeem. I have recently been placed in charge of garbage. Do you have any that requires disposal? No, it's totally empty. Well, when it fills up, don't be afraid to call me. I'll come take it out most urgently. That's good to know. When you think of garbage, think of Akeem. Like, he's just so likable. He's moral and he's hardworking or wants to be hardworking. He respects women and he is just so, like, kind and do-gooding. And, like, just Eddie Murphy's performance is honestly just kind of breathtaking because everything he's done before this was very loud and obnoxious and, you know, snarky cop, um, you know, like, just the complete opposite of this performance. Like it almost like it blows my mind that that's the same Eddie Murphy. And I love that this movie pulls off wit and cleverness and real humor um, while also being so genuinely sweet. Yeah. Very sweet. Um, And, and it's also sweet without, in my opinion, without being treacly at all. Like, I don't think it's saccharine in any way. I think the emotional moments are pretty much well earned and there are even some like plot twists that i kind of didn't expect um the moment where eric lasalle who's lisa's boyfriend eric lasalle's character and lisa's father mr mcdowell like announced that eric lasalle has popped the question and announced that lisa has said yes to be married to him when neither of those Mm -hmm. things happened and that's a really pretty shocking story moment but i like that as kind of a mirror of the arranged marriage Mm -hmm. that akeem is going to be subjected to when, if and when he goes back to his home country. Yeah, it shows that even though the cultures are really different in one way, like, and America is seen as more free, you know, like, you can choose your own mate, but, like, it's really the same thing that's happening, as her father still has, like, more say over this than she does. So I, I found that that was a nice parallel, and that was one of my favorite moments of this movie, too, because it actually had believable, kind of relatable emotions, I just feel like this movie, like you say, he's like, Eddie Murphy is so likable. I agree. I really like his performance in this. He's very, very charming. I like watching him in this movie, 
but he's also like perfect. He has no flaws. He has no conflict, really. It's just like this feels like a cartoon to me. Like Mm -hmm. that just happens to have like rated R language and stuff. Like I could see that. It's so fantastic. And so like its vision of Africa is obviously not realistic. Zamunda is not real. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's fine. You know, that's fine. But it just it it's so over the top that like it kind of rubs against the reality of like the story in New York for me that like I just don't feel like those quite ever reconcile with each other like he doesn't really go through a journey in this movie I feel like he already knows in the beginning what he wants he wants a bride he's gonna go to America and find it and that's what he does like he, the first woman he finds is the woman who comes to him and then not he's the like first no there is a little bit of a searching oh, okay yeah they go to the club with and the he's Arsenio like Arsenio Hall and drag yeah <laughs> yeah he goes to one club one day well we don't we assume that it is probably more you know what I mean yeah. there's a yeah. little bit of a time there were two sets of identical twins in that sequence I mean, I think they're wearing the same clothes the whole time, but <laughs> well, you, you, I don't know. I get it. It's like a this movie's like a fairy tale. It's That's got, exactly it's what got I was going to say. Princes and princesses yes. and mistaken identities, and it's yes. very Shakespearean fairy tale ish. I think that it's accurate to say this is kind of cartoony, and mm. and I was watching it this time, and it does seem like he kind of already knows this isn't the life for him, and he's like teaching semi you would respect a, a woman who is basically your servant it's like well where did he learn that right so i get that that, that we don't see where he's learning that you know actually i don't want this life he kind of already knows he doesn't and he goes about pursuing it so he doesn't go through that much of an arc and i would like to see like a scene where i mean i don't want he can be a nice guy but like where he does something that's kind of presumptuous and then you know, Lisa has to say, like, whoa, that's not well, okay I feel like here. he has a bunch of moments where like he what? does that. I, I mean, so, like, for one, uh, there's that m- moment in uh, where they all go on a double date to a basketball game. And in the line for the bathroom, a guy working in the basketball arena happens to be a former citizen of Zamunda. Mm-hmm. And, like, freaks out. And, like, I love he, that scene. <laughs> I love that scene. And he takes a photo with Akeem. And then when Lisa and Daryl, who's Eric LaSalle's character, um, come over and see that happening, uh, and Lisa asks Akeem what's what's going on, like, who is that guy? And Akeem says, just a man I met in the restroom. Like, well, that's, I, like, an awkward joke, but that's not him actually doing, like, making a mistake or learning anything. But that is a mistake. That's a social faux... Like, I will totally grant that, like, most of the things that he does that are mistaken or whatever are kind of on the level of, like, social faux pas. Um, I get it. But also, like, they leave their luggage out. They go to the shittiest uh, hotel possible. Mm-hmm. They leave their luggage outside, because I'm guessing they expect for people to bring that in or something like that. But it all immediately gets ripped off. They Well, that doesn't feel like... I think I... As much as I... It doesn't bother me. I think I agree with Chris that that stuff is more just like, here's some fish out of water scenarios yeah. versus Akeem learning anything. But like, yeah, if that had consequence, if the fact that his luggage, like he had something in there that he really needed and, or like, then they were like, or oh shit, we don't have then. money yeah. and we're like on the streets tonight. Whatever. I mean, I think what you're looking for is for there to have been something wrong with him. And I think the story of the movie is that there's just something wrong with the worldview that he's had to live in his whole life. And that when he breaks out of that, it becomes clear to him what he actually wants. Because he knows that he doesn't want what he's being 
what's being imposed on him. He doesn't want to have an arranged marriage and all that. But he doesn't really know exactly what he wants or who who he wants. But he doesn't ever learn what he wants. He doesn't, like, it's not a process of discovery. It's like, he just shows up knowing what he wants. When he sees the girl, he's like, yep, that's the one. He knows immediately. Like, it would be more interesting if she, like, he didn't think that she was the one right away. But, like, they had to spend some time together before he actually realized it. Like, he was chasing after some other woman. And then it turns out, like, oh, this woman... You know, like, this is how it should actually be, is it should be someone that you connect with. Well, but this isn't the Before Sunset series. We don't have, like, four feature films to tease all this out. It's not the story of someone's entire lifetime. It's the story of a guy coming to America for the very first time. It seems like it really isn't Akeem's... It's obviously Akeem's story, but it kind of isn't. Like, it is what Seth said, the world's learning that things don't have to be that way. Like, he just is his great self, and it's... Other people realizing, oh, I can be with a poor man because they think that he's actually poor or his parents, parents, the parents are the ones at the end that are the ones that make the final decision because she's like, oh, I thought you were the king. And so it's almost like his parents realization that tradition doesn't have to like overtake what you want in life. Like we can change the rules. Um, so it almost doesn't seem like it's really Akeem's arc at all. Like it's yeah. other people, like Mr. Mc. Dowell learning and it's kind of like everyone around him learning well that brings up kind of one of my biggest problems with the movie is that he goes to america to find a woman does that and then brings her well he doesn't even bring he doesn't choose is like she ends up like surprising him there but he was gonna go along with the arranged marriage anyway he thinks it's the arranged woman so he doesn't even change or do anything it's just that surprise his parents chose to let him have this woman so it's still up to them and then they still live in africa in that same environment so he hasn't really changed like i would have enjoyed like seeing him like actually like the job that he takes in new york or something like that and be like oh i want to live here and i'd rather reject like all this money and power and i i'm happier here with this woman doing a job and just like living in a free society instead of going back there and just being like well now i've got my woman I mean, I just think that was that last, like, the wedding scene and all that. I think that was just done as, like, the cutesy third act wrap-up That's the end of the movie, I mean. (laughs) I know, but I think you're taking it as some, like, grand narrative reversal of the entire film. And, like, what I'm saying is, no, I just think it was, like, done to have a cute wedding scene in the movie. Well, I want more from a movie than a cute wedding scene. I I think I agree with both of you. Like... (laughs) I like the ending. I think it's funny. I think that it would be interesting if they also had some sort of like them actually going to New York and living in New York, like maybe over the credits, like over the credits, we kind of see like people's faces and it's like, oh, that person play that person. But what if there is a credit sequence where um, they're back in New York half the year or something? Mm. You know what I mean? Like and then you see like more of the Zamunda people being in New York with them and and maybe they're getting a hot dog on the street or yeah sure yeah. I mean I just feel like he goes to America and learns nothing like he just is already himself like all he needs is this woman finds her immediately all he has to do is like get rid of her existing boyfriend and then just takes her back and like he does like nothing about his journey in America does he bring back like no lesson that he learns that's not true at all okay he, what like, is it because he spends most of his time in New York pretending not to be who he is. And I think a big part of what he learns is that he can't, like, completely escape that 
part of himself. Like, he can't escape where he came from. He can't escape himself. I don't think he just doesn't try that. I mean, he does get a job and all that, but he seems, like, so happy to do it. But I don't know. It's just, like, he is always he always knows that he's going back to Africa. He always knows that he has, like, bazillion dollars to fall back on. Like, I want to see, like, who he actually is, like, if he actually really does have to struggle or if things don't go the way that he expected them to. And mm-hmm. it's just, like, it's just not... I feel like there's no conflict in this movie and there's just not really that much of a story. It's just kind of episodes that are amusing, the which is conflict is definitely his parents and her parents. Mr. McDowell does not want Lisa to be with him um, when he's poor, but the second but it's like, we oh, he's know a that he's rich and he's always going to be rich. So that's not really a conflict for us because. But Lisa doesn't know that, and Lisa's family doesn't know that. And then another complication of it happens when Lisa's father, Mr. McDowell, finds out that Akeem is rich and then tries to encourage it because then Lisa is put in the position of this is yet another person that her father is urging her to settle for rather than the person that she's chosen. So, I mean, I kind of feel like you're undervaluing Lisa's story and role and agency in it. Lisa does have a lot of agency in this movie as a character. Like, it's not like she's kind of defaulted into settling for Akeem. Like, it's a choice that she completely insists on making only on her own and only on the merits of whether or not she loves him. I do agree with you to a large extent that this is like, it's a it's an episodic movie like so many comedies are. It's not super dramatic in that sense. But I I think there is a good kind of interplay and a good kind of chemistry, at least in the moments of this relationship that we get to see, that do seem genuine. And I do think they do have a lot of chemistry, like especially at that party that turns out to be Lisa's engagement party. Yeah, Um, They have like a scene on a swing set where they're talking to each other and kind of in so many words saying like, well, this is how someone would treat you if they really did care about you. And the way that you're being treated by this guy definitely isn't the way that you treat someone you really love and care about. To the extent that you're talking about the movie, like not having a ton of dramatic heft i totally grant that even lisa feels like a perfect person they both feel perfect and it feels like they're trying to be their moral selves and the world is telling them no like you have to do these things so that's why i feel like they don't have arcs they're just i don't know i don't i don't see the movie setting them up as perfect i do see the movie setting them both up as fundamentally good yeah okay maybe perfect's the wrong word but um they just want to do what they want to do and live a happy life and it's society and their parents and tradition that are telling them no 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 and that is where the conflict is coming from not from them learning something but them battling against society basically I guess. I mean, I liked the scenes with Lisa as well. I felt like that was definitely the most emotional hook of the movie was kind of her story. And she's a pretty relatable, believable character. But I just wish that it was more about the two of them actually like learning from each other. And they have good chemistry, but they don't really teach each other anything. Like, I feel like she could have been the more in charge of her, this instead of like really leaving it up to the parents in the end it is kind of just about the parents and the well, parents they didn't just snatch her i mean i think they realized that like she does love him and so they just said we're okay with what you want i would like to see that they didn't yeah I, but then it would ru- ruin the surprise at the end with right the veil but i and... care more about like the main <laughs> characters of the movie and how they got to the end decision that they made than like a surprise i still think that it's implied like she doesn't say i love you but it's implied like i'm not gonna let you give up your 
your family and your royal like perch <laughs> um by saying I love you and making you abandon all that because he was like I'm ready to leave right now like I renounce my throne and she's like I'm not going to make you do that um so it's kind of had to like be right with his yeah. family well I also I'm just like he was he didn't like think about that for a second it was like I'll abandon everything and yet he he in some ways cares so much about what his family thinks but then will also abandon them completely it's like I want him to at least like have some conflict about that and like Maybe a moment where he's like, oh, well, I don't know. But no, because he establishes from the literal beginning, from the li- very first scene of the movie, uh, like he goes from uh, when they sit down to have breakfast together and Akeem's on one side of a very, very long table and his parents are at the totally opposite end. Like he gets up and walks over it. Like he breaks those conventions constantly, but always goes back to the love that he has for his parents. And he like kisses his mom his mom the queen like on the forehead he's always very willing to skirt the royalty side of it and the decorum and that kind of overt symbolism of power but he's not the one insisting that oh respecting the throne is the same thing as respecting my family but and it's the parents who have to learn to change but as you say, he always goes back to them. So, like, I want to see if he's going to choose to get rid of them and and turn away from them and just stay in New York with Lisa if that's what she wants. I want to see some kind of conflict with that. Like, that should be a harder choice for him if he's spent the whole movie, like, going by their standards. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, I guess I don't care about them anymore. I know that it's a broad comedy and, like, you don't want to spend... I don't want this to be, like... But I think you're characterizing all of this as Lisa is submitting to her parents' will and Akeem is submitting to her parents' will. And I totally disagree on both sides of that. I think in both cases, they're recognizing Lisa and Akeem are the people recognizing that the things they want include their past, include their families, include where they came from, and that their families have to learn to reconcile themselves to who it is that Lisa and Akeem actually want and who they actually choose. But what are they even going to do? Like, it doesn't have anything to do with, like... Why does one movie have to answer the entire future trajectory of a religion? I want to have an idea of, like, why they went to Africa and what they're going to do now. Like, well, what do you mean? Who's they? Akeem and Lisa? Yeah, Akeem and Lisa. They're like, just going to is... be the. They're going to be royals. Exactly. And isn't that what he doesn't want? No, I don't think he doesn't no. want to be royal. I think he was perfectly fine being a prince and being a leader in his country. I think it was uh, the rose petals and the tiptoeing. But that's around also him happening. And... He wanted, no, well, he, he, he got wanted, rid of the rose petals. They were like, anybody always... who leaves rose petals at my son's feet will hear from me. Like, I think he's still rose petals. Like... I think he just didn't want to be like carried throughout life. He wanted to go have experiences. Yes. He, like, what I assume will happen after this is he won't have royal bathers and he won't be um, coddled. He'll, he'll right. be. I think uh, that's a big assumption because I don't think we'd see any evidence of that. I think we do. I think that's because he. I think it's to assume if we're if we're okay with you marrying who you want to marry, then we're okay with you leading how you want to lead. Because I don't think the problem was I don't want to be royal. It was I don't want to be a baby my whole life. Like I don't want my choices made for me. Yeah, I just feel like them going back to Africa in the end doesn't really sell that. Them staying in America and him like making it on his own would maybe sell it that made more. a bigger ending. <laughs> Yeah, you know what I mean. Like maybe some of that was sacrificed for the fact it was a, a bigger ending and it was a surprise. Yeah, and and once you have that, then it wouldn't like 
uh, pacing wise, having them go back to New York. And, you know just, what I mean? Yeah, it's a matter of taste. For me, it's like it's boring because there's just no story to it, really. It's very, very surface level. It feels very Disney to me with swearing. This is an important time to bring up, I think, the truly pivotal character in the film Coming to America, uh, a character we affectionately refer to here as Judgment Dog. (laughs) One of the things that John Landis does a lot in his movies is break the fourth wall. So this is just a thing in his movies that happens. And the wall is broken three times in this movie. (laughs) How many times by Judgment Dog? One time by Judgment Dog. Um, (laughs) Judgment Dog is the poodle that in the review and why I picked that review. (laughs) The McDowell's family poodle. (laughs) It's just like craziness is going on and the dog looks at the camera as to say like, these people, right? They're crazy. I feel like the dog, though, like, thinks it's his own movie, and there's, like, a whole storyline where he's, like, <laughs> that got cut out that's, like, about the dog. Because the dog, they barely mention the dog. It's just, like, he's just sitting there, he's like, just there. what? What? I guess we well, call him Judgment Dog is just because he's just judging what's going on yeah. around him. But um. No, and this time, watch, re-watching it this time, the, there are so many more reaction shots of the dog that are not emphasized as much, <laughs> but where the dog is clearly very aware of what's happening in the scene oh, dramatically. Oh yeah, he's following it. He's into the drama. Oh, he is here for the drama. The other times is, it's like raining and Daryl goes to see Lisa's sister and they have like a little thing where it's assumed like, oh, they're going to get together now and Lisa's, Lisa's sister, I can't remember her name. Patrice. Um, Patrice. She's like, let's get you out of those wet clothes and he just looks at the camera like, all right, this is going well. And then also one of my favorite scenes, maybe in any movie, is when Akeem takes his first bride back to learn more about her and she keeps going like, whatever you like, what kind of music do you like? Whatever music you like. Um, and he's basically like, you're going to just do whatever I say. And he's just, she's like, uh-huh, disobey me. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, okay, bark like a dog. <laughs> A big dog, woo, woo. Um, and he and he lo- he looks at the camera during that. Scene. Okay, yeah, I liked the that scene too. I mean, I don't want to undersell the fact that like most scenes in this movie, I think, are funny, and yeah, there's a lot of really good comedic moments. That's one of them. There's yes. so many. The guys in the barber shop, I think, are hilarious. I don't like. You don't see, like that's, them? That's my other kind of thing that I just don't. I don't find that funny. Like when I know it's like Eddie Murphy in makeup, and I don't think the makeup's very good because like you can really. really? Because yeah. when this movie came out, nobody knew the white Jewish guy was Eddie Murphy. Like, it was really? a shock. That's why it, the movie ends with the, I don't think he has a name, the white Jewish guy. Um, and it says Eddie Murphy. And I people were shocked. Like, they had no idea. I mean, maybe if I didn't, I mean, I think I still would have known. But <laughs> if this was the first time he's done that. But I know that that's like Eddie Murphy's shtick, like in so many other movies. And it's just like this again. And like none of, I just find all of that like really irrelevant. You've insulted Eddie Murphy. You've insulted <laughs> Rick Legend Baker. I've insulted Eddie Murphy. I've insulted Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I thought that's what you were going with, Seth. Yeah. Um, like my sister loves the sexual chocolate scene. And I, I, if I had to pick like a flaw of this movie, like it would be like goes on a little too long and it has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, that goes on never see those people again but i like the barber like the, we do see the barbershop people a couple times so i was okay with them having like a longer scene to introduce them and like kind of like for them to show off their characters but it just feels like an snl sketch to me it doesn't like they don't make any impact on the plot like it's clear that they're not like real people that are developed in any way it's basically like doing stand-up directly to the camera i like it <laughs> it's entertaining yeah. i mean they're <laughs> instrumental but they're not plot devices that are given a whole act of this movie, so I don't get why they stick out. 
they stick out because it, it's obvious. It's just that too much. Like, if you want me to like be in the story, like just put real people in there, and you know, it's it's like they're basically like winking at the camera the whole time. Like, look, it's me. Yeah, I think I mean, that was the, Murphy. I think that's the point. Yeah, I just don't like it. It takes me out of the movie. Like, I want to be engaged with the story and like believe what's going on. And this is like, oh, there's Eddie Murphy in makeup. Did you, you may not have an answer for this. Did you feel the same way during the Nutty Professor? <laughs> yeah, I did. I honestly <laughs> okay. don't like that. I think the makeup is a little bit better and it fits more into the tone of that movie. But I also am like kind of over it in that movie, too. I'm like, I get what's going on here. Like, just get on with the story. It's it's mm-hmm. all just very much like joke, joke, I, joke. I get what no. you mean. I guess it just entertains me. So I don't care. Like, I mm-hmm. think they're funny to watch. There's one more fun thing I wanted to mention that I didn't notice until watching it this time. Uh, the closing credits of the film actually thank the Zamunda Film Commission <laughs> <laughs> for their assistance in making the movie. Oh my god, I really would watch a sitcom all about life in Zamunda. <laughs> because oh, the I first totally half hour of this movie, or 20 minutes or whatever, with all the, like, the, 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 the animals going by in the background, <laughs> and like just the whole world, like I was just so enamored with it. Like I thought it was so funny. Also, like, I, I want to see like, more. It was so funny because like the, the outdoor scenes during the wedding and stuff, like that place looks like Oz, where it's like, <laughs> it like everything that. is super <laughs> colorful and like art deco. It's beautiful. I guess it's to contrast with New York, which was right. like in the 80s was like totally. a piece of shit. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I like the way that they did that because I was I went into this movie a little bit worried that it would be a bad depiction of Africa yeah. as so many things of this time kind of were and especially cuz I know that this movie is not very nuanced so I was a little bit worried about how they were going to do it. But I think they did a good job of making it so fantastical that like you don't really read any specific realism into it, and I was totally fine with that. I was very distracted by the fact that Mufasa is wearing a lion in this movie. You mean James Earl Jones? Yes. Mufasa but he's Mufasa. Is- <laughs> he has a name. he's wearing a lion. It's disturbing, because he I sounds exactly like Mufasa. love that outfit. He's playing the same character as Mufasa. Was he foreshadowing? Is that what he was telling us? I guess so. I mean, obviously, like, they were casting The Lion King, and they were watching Coming to America, and I'm like, I guess... The, those two over there. <laughs> Let's do the math here. I guess we're sold. <laughs> this movie's just so funny. Again, I just want to, like, go over quotes. The land is so big. The choice is so infinite. Where shall we go? Los Angeles or New York? We will let fate decide. Here's New York. Tails Los Angeles. We go to New York. But where in New York can one find a woman with grace, elegance, taste, and culture? A woman suitable for a king? Queens. Like, it's just such perfectly written, when like, they rent, oh. When they rent that shitty motel room, there is a, a tape outline of a guy where someone died <laughs> and a tape outline of a dog. And the hotel owner goes, damn shame what they did to that dog. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many, there's so many lines that are just, I feel like the performances hold up so well. The The comedy itself, if not, like, the story, like, did you think it was funny? Yeah, it was amusing. I mean, did you not yeah. laugh when when they went to the uh, basketball game and Patrice was jacking him off under his coat? Come on. <laughs> I mean, it was amusing. It was it was fine. I didn't dislike it. I do agree. Like the performances are good. They hold up. Like this doesn't really feel dated at all. I don't think. Like the same script could be taken today and like twenty. Like I think you would rewrite it differently. But like I was a little bit worried that more of the humor would play on like racial stereotypes or 
gender things that just didn't hold up. And I think the script does a good job of not really digging into those things. Like, all the humor is based on either, like, Zaymundo. It would be very easy to imagine this movie, like, making fun of African culture or kind of saying, like, ooh, the way that the Africans do things is bad. Like, come to yeah. America and everything's better And here. at one point, yeah. Daryl is the one that's, like, saying, like, oh, what do you... Like, he's he's uh, saying, like, that he's backwards because he's from Africa. Right. Um, which is interesting because it's a black person saying that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and Daryl is, like, the villain in this. So we know that he's a jerk and what he's saying is wrong. And it's interesting because... That's why, like, Akeem doesn't really have a problem with his homeland because she's like, what's your home? What's Samunda like? And he's like, oh, you'd love it. It's people are friendly. It's beautiful. Like, he likes where he's from. Mm -hmm. So it's also not like he wants to leave his homeland and he's like, I'm done with Africa. I don't want Africa. He's not rejecting that. Yeah. Um, So that's why, again, the end works for me, that it makes sense for me that, like, there is a story where it makes sense where he stays in New York, but him going back home doesn't make it seem like... I just wish there was an idea of, like, why personally do he and she want to go back there? Like, what, like, do they have any purpose? Like, it feels like they're just going to go back and, like... At the end, he's like, we could give all this up and go back to New York. And I think, I mean, it's a laugh for me. Like, she's like, she's like, nah. (laughs) Like, this is great, actually. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that is funny, but it also, like, doesn't tell the story that I think the movie could have told. So after the release of this movie, um, CBS developed a sitcom based on it. What? Uh, it did not get picked up. <laughs> it was not Eddie Murphy, right? No, he wouldn't have starred. No, okay. he didn't star in it. Um, but it's kind of interesting. Like, what would... I wonder what it was. Like, was it after the events of this movie? Was it the whole Well, like you itself? said, like, a, a sitcom in Zymunda makes sense because it's such a wacky But it world. wasn't that. It was... All I know is it was coming to America. It took place in New York. No, it that doesn't makes sense yeah so i don't know what it didn't coming to america i mean if they can make a sitcom out of a league of their own i guess they can make a sitcom yeah. out of this well there is a sequel in the works why like literally this news was released a few months ago jonathan levine who directed warm bodies that yeah. zombie rom-com um is attached to direct and a writer from blackish are signed on um i don't want it <laughs> Yeah, I don't want. This. I don't want any part of it. It's probably gonna it. be like what his son does the same thing or daughter goes yeah. to marry. I don't yeah. know. I don't want it. I don't want any part of it. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I want to point out is that um, uh, there was a humorist and columnist named Art Buckwald. He sued Paramount Pictures and Eddie Murphy, alleging that they stole his script idea and turned it into Coming to America, and he won. <laughs> Oh, really? Whoa. Yeah. It's very rare for those who don't know. Like, this happens a lot where somebody's like, you took my idea. Even if even if they really, really did, it's very hard to prove and win. And he won. Um, so I don't know what that means for any, like, it kind of makes me feel kind of bad that, like, they would have taken this i don't know it's a very strange i wonder what his original story was it was about a place called zaymunda where <laughs> it says right here he filed suit in 1990 against the film's producers he claimed that they stole the idea from a treatment he wrote in 1982 um, about a rich african royal who came to america for a state visit um and i guess other things happened that were very similar <laughs> to coming to america um they optioned the treatment from him, from buckwald um, John Landis was attached as a director and Eddie Murphy was the lead. But after two years of development hell, um, they abandoned the project. And then I guess they s- 
started it up again. So maybe okay, that's that why. is like blatant. That's stealing really it. blatant. Yeah. No wonder he won oh that. Oh my god. That's terrible. It, when it's the same people, I mean, and when he was literally attached to it. Yeah, for two I years. would. I probably sue too. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. I sue. You should. Yeah. So yikes. <laughs> Did this uh, movie make anyone else hungry for a McDonald's french fries? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I am now that you mentioned them, but I was not at the time of watching the movie. <laughs> this past October, there is a sandwich place in L.A. called Fat Sal's, I believe. Mm-hmm. And they dressed up the restaurant as McDowell's. And I really wanted to go. <laughs> like, all the um, employees were wearing the same, like, plaid um, uh, out like outfits that the the employees wore in the movie uh-huh. and they they like made a mcdowell sign and they i think maybe arsenio hall came by and took a picture of them and i they- want to talk about mcdowell's for a second <laughs> like, is it like a scottish theme with those a like a little with the plaid but besides right. that it's mcdonald's right also the fact that they have a running gag about copyright infringement and stealing the ideas of other people oh, given I like what that. that movie became oh, yeah that's pretty ironic <laughs> meta it's a little too ironic. Eddie Murphy was a huge star at this point, and this was, a, as we said, a huge hit. I think that the Eddie Murphy downturn happened around 2002 with The Adventures of Pluto Nash, because he kept having, like, huge That was hits. the abyss. I don't, I'm not sure that that was the first, but it was the worst. Well, but after coming to America, he um, he had The Nutty Professor, he had Dr. Doolittle. Even if the quality wasn't there, they were huge hits. So he made, like, a sharp turn into family entertainment, but, like, they were still huge hits. And then The Ventures of Pluto Nash was a critical flop and a box office flop. And ever since then, it has kind of been, like, a sharp turn down with one little shiny spot of uh, Dreamgirls when he had an Oscar nomination. And then it went right back down. (laughs) The same year as Norbit. Or like, yeah. yeah. And that's what people think why he didn't win the Oscar is because Norbit was released during Oscar campaign season. And people were like, that movie's getting the worst reviews ever. It looks like a piece of shit. And we don't think we want to give you an Oscar when that's what you're promoting right now. Like, it's all politics, but... Yeah, I mean, I think the the last great movie Eddie Murphy made was Bowfinger. Which is great. I think it's fantastic, and if anyone mm-hmm. hasn't... I mean, I totally recommend everyone see Coming to America if you haven't yet. Um, but also, watch the hell out of Bowfinger, because that movie is hilarious, and he has multiple great performances in it. Did Steve Martin write that movie and direct it, or he, he wrote it at least? He wrote it, he did not direct it. Frank, Frank, Oz. Frank Oz directed right? it. Yeah. Eddie Murphy also, I guess he has, like, the voice of the donkey in Shrek. That's a hit yeah. for him. Like, that's a pretty positive And he was role. in Mulan as a voice. Yeah. So... His live-action yeah. stuff is really bad. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. And he's so talented. He really is. And yeah, and I haven't seen him turn on the charm like he did in this movie for no. a long time. He's and it's sad. Because it it's, it's so phoning it in. And he is so fucking charismatic and funny and i mean we didn't really go into it i'm glad we kind of didn't go into it like his stand-up stuff but like it's kind of a shame i mean it's always a shame when someone kind of rides out their coattails and just disappears into the sunset but i kind of wish that Eddie murphy would try to make a comeback along he tried with dream girls and it was like there it was yeah. happening for him and yeah. then after that, that just was nothing. still a hit for him he could have 
I mean, I don't know what was happening behind the scenes, but he could have chosen to do more projects like that, and instead yeah, he doubled down on like Norbit. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Movies. In that movie, so, yeah. like one thousand words or whatever that was. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean. I don't know why I'm just kind of speculating, but I just sense like kind of a bitterness from him now that like things didn't like seems like his it. choices feel very cynical and very desperate to like recapture something rather than like moving in another direction. Yeah. Whereas like the movies that like coming to America is not a movie that would be made anymore. Like it's just True. very different. So I think he's trying to do that again, but in much worse movies because that's probably the only thing that's written that's like, oh, this is the kind of thing I used to star in. So, yeah, he, I would love to see him, you know, do something dramatic and maybe, like, meta in a way where it's about, a like, a washed-up comedian kind of thing or something like that. Yeah, something that... Or it doesn't yeah. have to be quite that direct, but something where he's playing that kind of a character where you get, like, he can actually put himself into it again. Yeah, that would be nice. I I'm I would say outside of this movie, I'm not a huge Eddie Murphy fan, but I would love to see him use his talent. Yeah, Eddie, if you're listening, give us a call. We'll write you a script. And also, be please great. subscribe to our show and rate us on iTunes. Patreon. <laughs> and that's all the soul glow we have time for in this episode of When We Were Young. On the next episode of the podcast... We're doubling down on 1997 volcano movies with Volcano and Dante's Peak, which were released in the same year, slightly following Twister from 1996. And uh, yeah, check them out. Uh, this will be interesting for me because I haven't seen either one of them. I've seen neither of them and I am not looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) So join us next time. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed coming to America with us, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and rate and review us with all of your stars. Five or more stars are preferred. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash show. You can send us a tweet at show if you have suggestions for future episodes. And if you want to support a podcast that is produced and distributed entirely for free, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young. Especially you, Eddie Murphy. <laughs> I have been Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. I'm just doing a judgment dog reaction shot. And I'm Chris. <laughs> She's your queen to be, a queen to be forever, a queen who'll do whatever his highness desires. She's your queen to be, a vision of perfection. Of affection to quench your royal fire completely free from infection to be used at your discretion, waiting only.